a great privilege for us to sit under his ministry tonight and whatever your background, whatever your social status, wherever that you are from, I would like to tell you tonight as Pentecostals that we are people that love you. We are people that love God. We are people that worship God openly as you have witnessed here already tonight. We are people that love to lift our hands and praise to God. We love to clap our hands and praise to God. We are people that love our nation. We love the United States of America. Amen. We are people that pray and pray for and support the leaders of our nation. We thank God for the freedom that we have to praise and worship God. And we exercise that right and we exercise that freedom by praising God and also we're going to do it tonight in response to the ministry when this man of God comes. Brother Foss is pastor of the Greater Bethel Tabernacle in Houston, Texas. A very wonderful church. He has a long history, a great heritage in Pentecost. His precious dad, one of the pioneers of Pentecost, and Brother Foss himself, it's very difficult. It makes him sound old, and that's not the intent. But it's very difficult not to look at him as a pioneer of Pentecost, uh, at least to me. And he's not that much older than I am, but I have such a respect for him and such a love for him. Brother Foss, we're so happy to have you in Tupelo, Mississippi tonight. Section 1 and Section 2 of the Crusade, Northeast Mississippi Bible Conference and Crusade. Come and preach to us and deliver your heart to us. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. I believe the Lord would appreciate us giving honor to Thank God for our heritage. I thank God for the long history of Pentecost in this area. Those that have blazed the trail ahead of us that made it possible for us to be in this auditorium tonight having this kind of service. It didn't come easy. When our president when our president was eulogizing the astronauts that died in the shuttle in my city. He gave a phrase in his speech that I will never forget. And I used that phrase in a commencement exercise that I spoke in this year, one of the colleges in our city. In that phrase, he made a statement. He called them reaching for the stars. He called them travelers of the stars. 
and he called them our heroes. But then he turned to the living and he said, as our star travelers have given their lives for our endeavors, let it be known to you that are still living. The future is not free. I don't think you heard what I said. I really don't think you heard. When he looked at the living that was still there, he spoke to them and he said, as our sons and daughters, the travelers of the stars, have given their lives for our endeavor, be it known unto you still in the land of the living, the future is not free. To be where we are tonight did not come to have what we have cost so much, but let me tell you, because of what it cost in the past, it does not change it. Our future is not free. Are you willing to pay for it? To our pioneers of the Northeast District of Mississippi, and I could begin to name some of them, George Hill, A.B. Gurley, and the list would go on, that have passed from this stage of action that have brought us this far. My dad, one of the first 12 men to be baptized in the lovely name of Jesus Christ in the 19th century, gone on. I don't know what sacrifice is. I've had everything in the world. Oh, I remember when there wasn't food in our house. Dad had to trust God for food for us. I was just a lad of a boy. But somehow Dad wanted to make it. 
when we grew up that we wouldn't have to do perhaps as they done. I spent a big part of my day today reading the biography of my dad's life. I sit there and I wondered, look where we are. Everybody look back over your shoulder. Look where you come from. Then when you turn around and look where you're going, don't ever forget it. The future is not free. To you, Northeast Mississippi, I want to tell you that I appreciate your invitation to come. I don't feel like that it's worth the expense that you've had to go to to bring me here for me to be here only two nights. But you were so kind to ask me to come. Brother Hill, relay my feelings to Brother Craig, Brother Williamson, so happy to meet you tonight. We're glad to be with you and your sections and the people of God. I wish that I could take you all to my house tonight. I live in a big old home. You say, oh, Brother Foster, you live in the city. No, I don't live in the city. I'm a country boy pastoring a city church. I watched the deer in my backyard. When I couldn't go deer hunting, I killed my buck out of my garage door. That's Houston. That's Houston. I wake up in the morning at the crowing of the rooster. A little after daylight, I hear the old crow as he begins to argue with something. I go in tonight, stand there for a few moments, I'll hear the lonesome call of the old owl in the woods there behind my home. The other night I was outside and I heard the terrifying cry of a screech owl. I knew what it was, but it felt like the hair on the back of my head just when I heard the scream of that small little owl. I wished I could take you in the house and sit you down around the fireplace on a cold, rainy winter night. Just pull up a chair real close and let's talk a little while. I wish I didn't have to preach tonight, but I could just talk to you. I wonder if we started talking. I wonder where the conversation would lead us to. Where would it carry us to? What do you want to hear? What do you want to talk about? 
You see, the road to a friend's house is never long. And oh, how I've wished that I could sit down and, and talk to Mom. She's gone. We buried Brother Gidrose's daughter last week. And just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, Brother Gidrose. And just a few spaces over from where we buried them lays my mother and dad. My oldest son is laying there. How many times have I sat in the cemetery, watched the sun come up out of the east, and wish that I could just talk to Dad one more time? He always seemed to have my answer. You that have mom and dad with you tonight you ought to take time every day to at least let them know I love you mom dad I'm so glad you're here I wonder if that's what you'd want to talk about where would our conversation lead lead us with that in mind I want to read a verse of scripture then I'm going to ask you a question. When I ask it, I want you to be brutally honest with me and be honest with the Lord. I received a phone call that asked me not to preach in Mississippi what I'm going to preach tonight. It's strange. Whatever you do, don't preach that sermon in Mississippi but I feel it in my heart and to God be the glory to God be the glory don't ask me why they said that I can't tell you but they knew that I was coming here and that I was here. They asked me, what are you planning on preaching? Hey, that's grounds where angels fear to trod. I don't ever tell anybody that. And I certainly wasn't going to tell them. And they said, well, whatever you do, don't preach, etc., etc., in Mississippi. If you have your Bibles with me, I want to read to you out of the book of Hosea tonight. The final night, I wish I could stay for tomorrow. I have been gone so much this summer, preaching over the country in camp meetings and all through the spring in Europe, the British Isles. I have to go home. At least I think I do. But I know that God's going to be with you. If you have your Bibles, Hosea chapter 11, 
And I will begin reading at verse 1. Read down through verse 8. Then I will go into the book of Ephesians and read chapter 2 and verse 10. I will conclude the Bible reading in Revelations chapter 21, verses 2 and verse 9. Notice the reading of the word of the Lord. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam. They burned incense to graven images. I taught also Ephraim to go, taking them by their arms. But they didn't know. They knew not that I healed them. I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. And I laid me unto them. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities, and shall consume his branches, and devour them, because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they call them to the Most High, none at all would exalt them. Now listen to the change. This is the Lord talking all the time. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as the Boim? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Ephesians chapter 2. in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Revelations chapter 21 verse 2 and verse 9. 
And that John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Listen to this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, come hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. I find my text in that last statement. Come here. I will show you the bride. The Lamb's wife. I want to use tonight for a subject. The making of a bride. The making of a bride. Lord, I need you tonight as I walk in troubled waters. Guide my footsteps. Guide my thoughts. Let me speak to those that are here tonight that really want to hear from you. God, allow me entrance into their heart, both young and old. For I believe that I'm talking to your bride tonight. I want to talk to her about you. There is a wedding. Give me favor with you, Lord. I won't receive any honor and glory, but we'll give it all to you. Everybody said amen. You may be seated. I read to you in the book of Hosea, and if I would go back about 10 years to maybe more than that, to your tabernacle in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and I was preaching a camp meeting in that old, hot, dusty, smelly, horrible who ever heard of a place like that for a camp meeting in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's where I saw my daughter-in-law walking down the aisle, down the side, and my son came over about middle ways of the camp and he was sitting by me and 
I punched him. I said, you see that girl walking there? She's going to the piano. He said, yeah. I said, you need to look at her. She is my daughter-in-law tonight. Not only did I recall even before I came here that camp meeting, I went back into my records to find some of the things that I had preached there. And I preached out of the book of Hosea, chapter 4. And this is my style of preaching in chapter 4. It said, For Israel slideth back as a black backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. But Ephraim is joined to idols. And the Lord said, Let him alone. It wouldn't be hard for me to preach from that standpoint. And I don't believe that the Bible contradicts itself. But the romance of God with men, the romance of redemption, is such an intriguing story. It sounds almost as a best-selling novel, but it is not in nobility at all. It is absolute truth. When he looked at Ephraim and said he's joined to idols, I've done everything for him. I've helped him in every way that I can. I've done all that I could do. Now, you leave him alone. I've given him up. Don't pray for him anymore. Don't talk to him anymore. That's not hard for a man to preach. That's a judgment preacher. Let him alone. Then when I read chapter 11, I find that God has made a change in his attitude. Somewhere there was an adjustment made in the attitude of God because he spoke about Ephraim. He said, Ephraim, you, you've done everything. I loved you like a man would love his lover. I drew you as best I could with cords, silver cords, the cords of love, but you wouldn't hear me. Chapter 5, you read that you built altars, Ephraim, and offered offerings to gods and to idols and to everything. You've done all of that. And Israel, I know that you've done wrong. I know that you've backslid. And you've done everything 
you've done it all. But then it's like a young man that's been jilted by his lover. He looks, and with a weeping heart, God said, How can I give you up? Chapter 4, let him alone. I've given him up. There was something about God. God's love is so great and measureless. His mercy is something that I cannot fathom because there are men tonight that I would have already mocked off and said, I will never talk to him again. But God goes back and talks over and over and over and over and over again. You, you cannot. How would you measure it? How would you measure the love of God? By what criteria would you lay it down and say that this is the way we're going to find out how much God loves because when God begins to love there is no end it's on and on and on and on when you look at God His, His very nature is love because God is love personified. When the Bible said God is love, He said it all. There is no description for it. There is not enough adjectives for me to place upon the love of God in order to tell you that that is how much He loved and the way that He loved you. Today is my wife's birthday. And as she let me out at the airport, she said, I can't believe that you're doing this again. I said, honey, what? She said, last year on my birthday you was gone. And you was pitching. On my anniversary, August the 8th, 41 years, you was in Indiana preaching a camp meeting this year. And when she let me out of the car, she said, I can't believe it. I said, baby, if you'll just wait till I get back. When I get home, when I get back, we are going to celebrate. And I can't hardly wait to get back there. You hear me? I don't think you understand. Oh no. Oh no. And so this morning as the ritual goes at my house. Now you can do what you want to, see. It's up to you. But every morning, not just when I feel like it, but every morning when I get up, I go to the kitchen. I plug in the coffee pot. I make the coffee. I know exactly like she, how she likes it. I fix that cup. 
I pull me a cup. I carry it 114 feet back to the bedroom. And when I get in there, I walk over and I say, baby, here's your coffee. It's time to wake up. She turns over. Put the, I reach over and put my pillow behind her, and she sits up in the bed, kind of curls up. I sit right by. You ought to try it. What a day, what a way to start your day. Oh, you say, but the boss, I wouldn't do that. You know what you got, I don't. Maybe if I knew, I wouldn't blame you. You know, I don't understand some people. You know, you can't measure God's love. I had a woman in my office talking with Sister Foss and I just a few days ago and heartbroken, home about to break, Pentecostals. You know, a few years ago, we never knew that we'd ever have to deal with marriage and divorce. But if you've got a church that's very big at all, you're already looking at the problem. Marriage and divorce, it's there. She sit there. She wept. I said, tell me, if you can, what's wrong? I don't believe that he loves me. I said, what makes you think that? I said, Brother Foss, 21 years of married life. I've never heard him say, honey, I love you. How are you going to measure the love of God? What are you going to do with it? a mother. How would you measure the love of a mother? I have witnessed mothers going through almost hell on earth and yet love a child. When a dad said, I'm through, you said, Brother Voss, why? I wasn't the one that went to death. I spilt no blood. I bore no pain. When my boys were born, it was my wife that lay in the bed, weak from exhaustion. It was her that gave of her very flesh and bone. It was her for nine months during the gestation period that carried the child. Brother Foss, don't talk like that. Our kids are here. Hey, your kids read worse than what I'm saying on the restroom walls. Hey, don't think I'm going to shock your kids. No way can I shock them. My wife was the one that laid awake at night with that baby moving, that baby growing. I'd wake up, honey, what's wrong? I don't know, I'm just restless. It was her. Oh, but when, when the baby come out, sure, I loved it as much as I could, but doing everything that I could to love my boys, give them everything I can give them. Love them every way I could love them. I never have been able to attain the depth of pure, unadulterated love like the love my wife has for her boys. 
Mother. Never seen a mother give up on a child. No matter what they've done. I had an alcoholic, a drunk. Now don't make me hurry tonight. This is Friday night. And you don't have to go to work tomorrow. I've got further to go to get home than any of you. And I'm going to have a celebration when I get there. And I'm in just as much. Look, I may not even go to sleep tonight. I may stay awake all night long because I'm excited. So stay awake with me. Would you do it? Punch the one next to you and tell him, hey, wake up! Oh, I'm going to. You're going to get your money's worth tonight. I had a drunk, an alcoholic. I went and meet after about a six-week protracted drunk. I went to their home and I had supper with them on Saturday night. And his wife, assistant principal of one of our high schools in the little town where I was pastoring, great woman. Dad was in politics, clerk of the court. Fantastic family. And I, I went over there on a Saturday evening, and we had dinner that night. And she told me, he's coming to church with me tomorrow. And I, I, I made it my business to talk to him. And likeable guy when he was sober. I walked out the back porch, and I looked, and there was a wheelbarrow. One of those construction-type wheelbarrows that had the rubber tire on it and, and big cement-looking wheelbarrow. And it was level full with whiskey bottles, six weeks. I went back in and I sat down and talked to him. And, Brother Foss, I'm glad you're here tonight. Appreciate you being in my home. Glad you came. But he said, I want to talk to you. And he took me off in another room. He asked me a question. He said, you, uh, you're uh, not going to let them burn me, are you? And I said, well, no. No. I don't, uh, you know, I don't understand the question, but no. Man, we're glad to be here with you. And it's great to be in your home. Such a fine dinner that your wife and you prepared. And your pastor came and we, we were here. Sure enough, that night, seated on the front seat, right here, 13-year-old daughter, mother and dad, began to call the disturbance in church. Coming off of this protracted, drunk, mind warped, mind beleaguered, mind not functioning just right. And I saw Lily Mae when she got up and and she nodded at me and shook her head and left. Before I finished that message that night, I saw a man walk in the door. On his chest was a big star. He had a hat in his hand, a gun on his hip. I saw a friend of mine, Jack Hines, walk in with him. 
And I was just about ready to give an altar appeal. And when I saw it, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew there was an emergency. I had the organist to go to the organ immediately. That organ began to play. Mr. Hines walked down the side of the auditorium, come up to the desk where I was at. While I was standing there, I bent over to listen to him. And he said, Brother Foss, Brother Foss, he killed her. I said, what? He killed her. Stabbed her with a butcher knife five times. Broke the blade off in her heart. She's gone. Somehow the little 13-year-old heard what was being said. She jumped up and ran to the pulpit. No, Brother Foss. No. I don't have nobody. Brother Foss. She put her arms around me. I never heard a child weep so deeply in my life. She's gone. All I have is gone. Everything I've got is gone. The church came to prayer, not knowing everything that was going on. Found out that he was in jail. One o'clock in the morning, they called me by the post. Come to the courthouse. Burtis Matlock, our sheriff, I walked in. He said, would you go into the cell and talk to him? I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to him. What's the matter? I seen the crowd outside. I could hear men cursing. I could hear them screaming. And the mob that was outside the door, he said, I can't hold them much longer. He walks to the window and he spits at them. They want him. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him now. Go talk to him and tell him to behave. Be quiet. Sit down. Don't say nothing. You know, I thought that the sheriff was going to stay with me and he unlocked the big door and I went in, he closed it and walked away. I looked around, nobody there but me and the man sat down on the floor Indian fashion and he folded his legs looked up at me. I said, hey fella. I went over and put my hand on him. I said, why don't you settle down? He said, those men outside want your life. Settle down. Be quiet. Be quiet. He looked up at me. He said, look, I've got a life and a battle to fight. I'm going to fight it my way. And you can help me. With that, I shook the door. I called the sheriff. He came and let me out. So high was the tension. Next day in our city, about the size of Tupelo, Mississippi, so widespread was the hatred until they called the district attorney. They got the district judge. They set the docket. They brought it to trial in just about 16 days. They got it all together. They got it ready to go. And I never will forget, I went to the judge and I said, Judge Brown, I 
I'm asking you not to use me as a witness in this case. And he said, well, Brother Foss, you was one of the last men that was with him. I said, I know, but I know nothing about anything what transpired or why this happened. He said, on one condition, that you will sit at the judgment bar with me. Friend, it looks altogether different when you're sitting behind the judgment bar and you're looking this way than when you're sitting in the audience and you're looking up at the judge. I never will forget the day that I heard the knock on the door and the bailiff said, would the court rise as your honor enters? I walked in with him and we walked up to the judgment bar and sat down. The judge picked up the gavel and he dropped it on the desk and said, court, come to order. And we were seated. Everybody that came in the courtroom was searched. It was packed. The courtroom would seat about 200. It was packed and jammed. People were standing in the aisles. Everybody that came in, armed guards, searched them. They took any pocket knives. They took any kind of weapons, anything that could be had. They took it off of your person when you come in. And as everybody was seated, and they finally brought in chairs enough and moved the rest of them out of the halls, closed the door, but just a room for a walk down the aisle and everybody was seated I saw the door open and I heard a hush come over the court and I looked and a little stoop-shouldered woman black hat black dress come walking down the aisle 81 years old full of the Holy Ghost wasn't a member of our church down in the river bottoms of Angelina County, there was a little church. Had been there for many, many years. And she was an old chartered member of a United Pentecostal Church. And she come walking down the aisle. I watched her. When she got to the dividing perimeter, where the defense counsel and the prosecution, the lawyer, the court reporter and everybody said, over to our right, put the jury in the box. They was already seated, already been found. There they were. She walked in and stopped. She looked up at us and said, Your Honor. He nodded to her and motioned for her to come to the bench. He leaned over and said, do you know who she is? I said, yes, sir. It's the defendant's mother. And she walked by him. Not one change of expression on his face. She passed him, patted him on the shoulder. He never even blinked an eye cold. Everybody wanted his life. They was asking for his life. The court was going to demand his life. Everybody wanted him to die. 
but that little mother, she walked up and looked into the face of that robe judge and said, Your Honor, I want to ask you, would you let me I have gone to bed with stomach cramps. I have gone sleepless nights. I have been sick at my stomach. I have wept and I have cried. It seemed as though that I couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't touch anything. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't hear anything definite. I would call. I would call. Brother Bill, that's one reason that I called you a few weeks ago. I knew where I had been. I don't know why I felt like I did, but I felt like that day I haven't ever called you before. I've never called you on the phone. But when I woke up that morning, at the full daylight, I was praying. Something said, Coy Hill, call him today! This year, there's been times that I would, I long to hear from somebody, somebody. You see, you can sit there with your pain in your cheek and snug and tell me you haven't had battles. If you haven't, I hate to tell you, don't go out the door because you're going to have them. Hey, they're waiting for you. You've got an adversary. You've got a devil that's after you. You've got something there that's going on. Oh, but what I want to tell you tonight, every one of you that raised up your hands and said that going's been tough, I'm preaching to some of you that's holding on by the skin of your teeth. Oh, there's some preachers in this audience tonight that are there in a sin place. They don't know where to turn. They don't know which way to turn. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. All they're doing is hanging on. But let me tell you, you are his workmanship. There is something about you that he won't ever give up on. Be as ugly and as dirty as you want to be, but he's going to keep coming. He's going to keep knocking. He's going to keep trying. You can be a discouraged preacher, and all there's nothing worse than a discouraged preacher. Be down as low as you want to get, but he's going to keep trying. He's going to try everything. After a while, He's going to put a hand down under you and lift you up and tell you, you are my child. How long has he loved you? Let's try to figure it out. I wished I had a thimble. I wished I had, you know, the top off of your fountain pen. 
Amen. Let's just uh, take that fountain pen top and let me... It's full. You see? It's full. Full of what? Molecules. Down in there. Molecules. Millions of them. There's enough inside that little pen top. Enough atoms if you split them to create explosives that would destroy this auditorium. Molecules. Molecules. Somewhere back in the eons, in the molecules, where there were billions before you was ever even known, before your parents even became married, then after they became married, the millions of seeds, the sperm that passed the ovum, those millions of times, everything that took place, everything that happened, somewhere, one little cell, that was you, when you were like that, God had already started loving you, because you was part of his workmanship. Hey, this may not be what you expected in a crusade, but I'm talking to somebody. I feel like that I've got people struggling for their life. I've picked up the life way. I'm going to pray as far as I can pray. I'm going to sing it as far as I can sing it. Oh God, help me to get it in reach of the preacher, of the saint, of the child that's got the hell up tonight. Maybe you can't even last until I get through. So let me tell you, hold on, because he is not going to give up on you. I'm sorry. Just let me tell him I love him a little bit. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You mean more to me than anything. If I never feel you again, I'm going to still love you. I appreciate you, Lord. I'm going to lift you high. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to let the world see you. You mean more to me than life itself. God, I want you to know that I love you. And my desire is to be more like you. And to be what you want me to be. Every hour of every day. Until I hear you coming.
Objects of love. They demand a lot of places in our lives. Things that you've loved. Old home place. But after a while, the old home place is soon forgotten. Weeds have grown up. Windows are broken. Somebody give up. But friend, he won't ever. He won't ever. You hear me? Next week when you're in your valley and the sun won't shine, I want to tell you, he won't ever give up on you. Objects. My oldest boy died for three years. We never moved anything in his closet. All of his stuff stayed right where it was at. The night he died, where he left it, that's where it stayed. All of his clothes, all of his shoes, everything in his drawer. We never moved anything. Three years, three years and a half. Brother Goodrose came to my house and said, you need to move some of that stuff out of that room. And it, it upset me because I didn't feel that really that was any of his affair, but he was telling me the truth. And... It wasn't long till I began to give up this. And I moved that. I moved some other things. And I've done away with this. And now in my garage is a little trunk. In that trunk is memories. Things that belong to him. You can't see it anymore. Somehow I give up. I used to visit the cemetery almost every day. Then it went by the week. Then it went by the month. Now it's been 20 years. It's now I go occasionally. Oh, listen, friend, but I'm talking to you about immeasurable love. I'm talking to you about a God. that he said, look, I can't tell you anymore, but I want you to know that I'm with you even to the end of the world. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You may not feel me. You may not know I'm there. You may not be able to see me. You may not understand. You may not hear me. But I want you to know that I am standing right there because I won't ever give up on you. so much that he knew I was coming. But let's talk about how consistent. Everybody say consistent. God doesn't run hot and cold. His love is consistent. When he was making this world, he knew that I was going to need a son that was going to give me light in the big time. He flipped it out there. And he said, now you're going to circle the earth. You're going to do it so many hours of a day. 
and this earth is going to tilt on its axis, and that's going to make it the seasons, fall, and winter, and spring, and summer, and you'll not be there, not even one minute, you're going to stay there. They can look the earth, and 10 years from now, on September the uh, 26th, in 1996, they can tell you what time the sun's going to rise. It's going to come up. That sun is going to make its orbit, and it's going to be down, consistent. It's never missed a day. It won't miss. I can get up this morning. I can feel bad. I cannot feel like praising Him. I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to talk to Him. But get up and look out in the morning, and there's His love. It's still that way, put it. Consistency. Consistency. Before you were born, he put everything he had into his love affair with you. Why? Because someday he will How many of you young ladies are not married? Put a hand. Come on. Because I'm not married. Come on, wave it at me. Come on, wave it. Come on. I want you guys to look at that. You know, if you're a young lady and it's not in your desire to be a bride, then there's something wrong with you. I hope you understand what if you're a young man and you look at these young ladies now I'm not talking about lust but if you don't light up when you see a pretty girl hey there's something wrong with you Praise the Lord for the cross. Don't you preach the making of a bride in Mississippi. Don't you preach it. Dear God, you boys, if you got a puss in your walk, somebody ought to load the seat of your pants with lead in both pockets.
and just hang on. If he is a sissy, you ought to take him out every day that you see him and rub his nose in the dirt and get his hands dirty and tell him to walk that dirt. just to stop for the boys. Hey, if you guys look at a girl and she looks like the world champion wrestler, got biceps that looks like she's been pressing 200 pounds every morning. Give her a needle and thread. Set her down. Give her some lace. And tell her, say it. I want to watch you. Take her from there to the kitchen. Tell her you want some biscuits. And she reaches over and gets a can and whops the cart counter and your biscuits come twelve in a batch. Tell her to go find the next guy. Mercy, Lord, help us. A bride. A bride. Never will forget my bride. Oh, and I can't wait till I get home tomorrow. Baby, today's your birthday. But I'm going to make it up to you when I get home. Oh, yeah. You're blind. My wife, 
collects dolls. And I used to collect guns. And somebody broke in my house and took about 17 or 18 of my finest weapons. And I never did have the courage to replace them all. And now that she's collecting dolls, I couldn't afford it anyway. And, but I was, I have a picture of her in her wedding gown in my office that sits right behind my chair. And I've got a picture in my billfold of her when she was 14 years old that I've had ever since she was 14. Give it to me when I was in school in the seventh grade. And I have that picture in my billfold tonight. And I looked at it today. And uh, there's a picture on the wall. I found the doll maker. And I went and got a wedding picture out of our album. And a picture, smaller picture than that big 11 by 14 portrait that's on my wall. I took it to a doll maker. Three years ago, I believe it was Christmas. I believe it was three years ago, maybe two. But I had that doll maker to duplicate the gown, duplicate the bouquet, put it on a blonde-headed porcelain face doll, duplicate the gloves, duplicate the shoes. And I was so proud when I sat there and there was two mother and daddy. Then when she got the first cover off, to my sweetheart. I love you, honey. And when she opened that gift, the thrill of my life was duplicated because she was my bride. Marriage is not an arrangement. It's not an arrangement. Maybe you don't have it to contend with in this area. I have people to get the Holy Ghost in my church. They're living together five years. Two children. They're the boss. We've got the Holy Ghost. And come to the office the next day. We've got the Holy Ghost. Working down with our babies. We're not married. What are we going to do? Hey, you're going to get married. That's what you're going to do. We can't get marriage license for 30 days. Am I going to have to leave my wife for 30 days? Now, you can criticize me if you want to and say what you want to and do what you want to and just so on and so forth because it don't matter to me whatever. I'll be gone in the morning. I'm going to a celebration and you can do what you please. Now, I called them in my office and in order to make them feel better. Nowhere in that book does it tell me that you've got to have a marriage license. Nowhere in the book does it say that you've got to appear before the clerk of the court. I said, look, we'll have a simple ceremony. Then you apply for your wedding your marriage license. Bring them to me. I'll fill them in. Send them in and have them registered. 
other faults. I wouldn't do that. I'm not surprised. My bride. My bride. What does it take? What does it take to be a bride? The Lord wants you. And he is not going to give up. Before you were born, he invested everything he had. He gave everything. I, I spent every dime I made before I started preaching. Every payday, I went and picked up my wife. See, I started liking her when we was in the sixth grade. I was 12 years old. I called her. I told her then, I'm going to marry you someday. She hung up on me. Now then, when she, when she questioned my wisdom, I told her, I knew more about it when I was 12 than you knew. I remember how thrilled I was when I first got out of school, got a job. I bought her a cassage every week. I would take her out every Saturday night in that little old Ford car. And we would go to a, a restaurant that served a certain type of ice cream and orange juice on it. And oh, it was, uh, a, a, you have catfish houses and it was a, what they called a chicken shack. Not one of these fast food things. But we would go there and it was one of the leading restaurants in the town. That was, oh, that was my, uh, my ambition. I was making the whole sum of about 45 cents an hour. That was big money. I was working for Reed Redhead. I was training to be a machinist. I took the night shift in order to make a nickel more an hour. And, man, go out and spend almost all my payday on her on Friday night. Daddy, I need to borrow a couple of dollars to buy gas to go to work. What you do with your money? Objects of love. Spend it on her. That's, oh, listen, friend. Before you was born, he started paying for it. He walked through a garden and he burst his insides crying because he looked in a cup and he saw you in the bottom of the cup. The sweat burst from his brow. He walked to a scourging post. And then he saw my arm just two years ago when the doctor looked at me and said, you leave it alone. I'll bury you in six months. That cancer, that they took a third part of the muscle out of my arm, there it is. I looked at it. Did you know that before I was even born, that he went to a scorching post and a whip was laid on his back and that flesh began to fall off in the sun and it fell off on the ground. The blood ran down the back of his thighs and that lash beat him until he was a bloody pop and he looked on, down, through the arms and sat and he said, Fire! These times you can say, I am healed!
well. They started a long time ago. He went on to Calvary. When he got to Calvary, he knew that I was going to need redemption. He knew that I had to have it. That redemption was worth more than anything in the world for me. It was worth everything that I could have. It was worth everything that I could possibly get my hands on. That's what he'd done. He knew that I was going to have to have it. It was mine. And he was saying, I love you. That I not only will give my back, but they can put a spear in my side. They can let the blood run when they do. It's all because I want you to be my bride. Hope that don't backslide you. If it does, come to the altar and I'll pray you through it. Don't preach that in Mississippi, Brother Now here we come. Anchorage, Alaska. Thomas Center. You ever been to a trauma center? We got the fifth greatest trauma center in the world in our city. You want to see Houston? Next time you come, call me. I'll set it up for you. Supervisor of the paramedics in our city is in my church. Every stabbing, every killing, every shooting, every multiple uh, injury wreck, He's on call. He goes. He's the one that calls life flight and tells him to come such and such a place and sends him to the trauma center. I went into the trauma center with him one night. You see everything. I seen head nearly blown off. I seen limbs shot off. I seen them tie a man down on a table one night. And he had been shot and it licked his artery. He was bleeding to death on the inside. Not time to give him an anesthetic. Not time to put him to sleep. Strapped him down. I watched him take the scalpel and him scream when they split his breast open. I watched him take a saw and cut that bone open and break it back. And that doctor reached in to that beating heart all the time. The anesthesiologist was trying to put him to sleep. Didn't have time. He'd stand there and suture that heart back like it was. You want to see Houston? I'll show you things you didn't know that ever lived. Anchorage, Alaska. Amador Hospital. Trauma Center. Laurie Excombe. Laurie? You 
work of a Dahinda Trauma Center. What would Zipin Lake Camaro go to work every morning, drive the same road, but this was in the fall. And that night, snow had fallen, and the Alaskan sun was just right, but it was that type sun that the snow blinded you. She came over a hill on her way to work that morning, had a uniform on, a little Camaro, driving not too fast, but as she topped the hill, the sun hit that snow. Momentarily, Laura was blinded. They don't know whether she swerved into the oncoming path of the huge semi, 18 wheeler. But whatever happened, the peacocks flew off, and the people that were behind the little canal said they saw the body fly through the air, and it hit face down in the snow. The, the truck literally went over it, went over the little car. The Z-28 and Larry laying out in the fence. They called the hospital, send an ambulance. The paramedics got there. Where is the driver? They can't be alive. And the man that seen it said to over there by the fence. Where she is. And they looked over there and saw it. The paramedics ran to her where it lay. But the snow was crimson. And the paramedic knelt down over her, afraid to move her because maybe there was vertebrae injuries. Maybe there was spinal cord injuries. He simply reached down and took hold of the hair. And when he did, it slipped off in his hands. He turned her face over, and there was no face. All there was was a hole. Just a hole. There was no eyelids. There was no eyebrows. There was no forehead. Nothing. No eyes. No ears. No chin. No lips. No face. Just a hole. Turned her over. The paramedic laid her back down in the face of a cross and thought that she was still living. He looked at her again and saw the bubbles coming out of this hole, just a big hole in her face. Why? Why? Didn't recognize her. In shock, he never saw the moon on the little moon planet. The paramedic that was used to her went over to the fence, leaned over, and vomited. They called, called three to the trauma center. We're bringing her in. They brought her into the hospital. And the people that worked with her didn't know who she was. Nurses died. Then one of them looked over and saw, why? Why? Extra. And when she saw it, she vomited and fainted in her own vomit. A monster. Nothing. My God. Somebody come to a nut 
if they said, we can't handle it here. What are we going to do? And one of the nations said, yes, Dr. Stallings is here. The greatest cosmetologist in the world. The greatest plastic surgeon was there giving a seminar. This man went out over the PA. Dr. Stallings, Trauma Center, Code 3. Dr. Stallings, Trauma Center, Code 3. When he walked in, he walked over there and he saw it before they put any kind of intravenous uh, injections. Life support began. They asked him why he done it. He started immediately. Love, you're going to make it. Love, you're going to make it. Love, you're going to make it. How many times have I been told by a doctor when I walked into an unconscious patient, be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. Somehow, in their subconscious, they hear what you're saying. Why? Why? You're going to make it. And you begin to order the IVs. Not the same saying. This kind of injection. Come on, start it. Come on, Larry. You're going to make it. Believe in me. You're going to make it. Seventeen hours on the operating table. A monster. Nothing but a monster. All the time, even though they managed to put her to sleep, once she was asleep, Larry, trust me, you're going to make it. Seventeen hours. Dr. Stalin stayed there. He stopped his practice. He closed the office. And there he stayed every day. Every day. Unprecedented. Thirty-five centuries followed. Thirty-five. That first 17 hours was nothing but putting nerves back together. Scraping bones clean. Moving tissue that was ruined. Scraping the flesh off. Nothing left but just a dropping hole. Put in a room, no mess. Nobody allowed to have anything that reflected. They didn't take her anything in. They fed her through intravenous injections. They could not allow her to look at herself. Lie! A monster. Lori finally asked for her husband. They called him to the emergency room. She was pregnant. She lost her baby. When he looked at her, Laurie's husband left and never returned. He wants to live with a monster. Thirty-five Seventeen months. Every time Laurie wanted to step out, they do it. No reflection in the bathroom. They wouldn't let her look at anything. Laurie, trust me, my hands are going to make you beautiful again. My hands are going to fix you, Laurie. Trust me. Let this practice 
Mikhail Devotion was to her. We literally, in those operations, took sandpaper and sanded the ball. He sanded the bruises, and then he would take flesh off of her legs and graft it. And oh, the graft is so hideous when it starts. But then he couldn't let it become soft. He would harden that and put her back to sleep and take sandpaper and sand that cheek. He sanded her nose. He sanded lips. He literally began to make her a face. On and on. Finally, 17 months. Larry, you can live in a one-room apartment he fixed in the hospital. You can stay in that room. No, we're not going to let you look. But after a while, Larry, you can look at yourself. She was beginning to look a little bit. And when she saw it, she screamed. She grabbed the knife. She wanted to die. But when she looked, the doctor knew she was going to do it. And he came running in the door.
belated. We run in. We run into the office. Lord! Oxford called. We're going to England. We're going to teach a seminar. Lori had been studying about it. She had made up her mind. She was going to quit her job. I'm going to leave. Dr. Stalins told her, this is our chance. We're going. She said, no, Dr. Stalin, you've given me so much. It's time for me to face the world by myself. And it wouldn't look right for me to go to England with you. I'm not going. Big old tears started running down his face. He looked at her and said, Laurie, you don't understand. I'm asking you to be my bride. I'm talking to some of you that's face down tonight on the road of life. Somebody turned you over and vomited. You're so ugly. You are a monster. But he's already started working on you. He's already paid the bill. Right now, he's going to have to do some sandpaper on you. Brother Drury, you told me that you've had knots in your stomach. You almost had stomach trouble. Look, Brother Drury, I wanted to tell you today, he's just sanding you a little bit. He's getting you ready. You say, why did a false ever trial, every moment of trouble, everything that's gone wrong, every time you couldn't make it, every tear you shed, it's just getting you ready. He's changing you because someday he's going to tell you it's our time to go and I want you. I want you to be my bride. Oh, listen, sir. Listen. Today, you're in workmanship. Some of you look so bad. But listen, when he gets through with you, he wants you to be his bride. That's how much he loves you. Oh, discouraged saint. I don't care what you've been through. He's done nothing but just sand a little bit of the rough spots off. That's all he's done. He's tried to make you what he wants you to be. Because you are his workmanship. My God. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody in the kingdom. But oh, he's just sanding me a little bit. When he gets through, my hands is going to make you 
into what I want you to be. You can't make it unless you're tried as gold is tried in the fire. The burden of the leader is just getting you ready. It's getting you ready for your trip with him. He's going to carry you through.